Hello and welcome to the Classic Fantasy Books podcast. On this podcast we review classic fantasy books, both old and new, with a slight bias towards young adult fantasy. I'm your host for today, Dr Luke Tarasenko. If you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash classicfantasybooks. Who is this podcast for? Well, this podcast is for people who either, one, want to remember or reflect on a classic fantasy book that they love, but that they don't have time to reread right now, or... Two, people who are looking for their next awesome fantasy read, but want to sample a book before they commit their hard-earned cash towards buying it. So you should listen to this podcast if you either want to remember what was so great about a classic fantasy book that you loved, or if you want to sample a classic fantasy book that you haven't read before. To cater for both kinds of listener, in each podcast, there'll be a spoiler-free zone at the start, where I talk about the book without spoiling anything from it, and read you its opening page in my delightful English voice, the best kind of voice for reading classic fantasy. I'll then read you some of the top-voted quotes on the internet from the book. After that, there will be a spoiler zone segment of the podcast, where I remind people who have read the book before what happens in the plot and speculate briefly about why it is so popular without being afraid to mention plot details. If you don't want the book spoiled, don't worry. I'll make it extremely clear when we are entering the spoiler zone so that you know. So let me just say this isn't a discussion podcast. Instead, I'm going to be reviewing what makes these books classics, reading you their opening pages and some favourite quotes, all for your enjoyment. Episode 1, The Lord of the Rings. So I'm starting with The Lord of the Rings, of course, because, well, not just because I hope that lots of people will find this podcast just by searching for The Lord of the Rings on the podcast store on iTunes, but because you have to start with The Lord of the Rings if you're doing any discussion of fantasy books or doing a classic fantasy books podcast. The fantasy genre didn't necessarily start with The Lord of the Rings, but as, as we know it now in its modern form or its 20th century plus form, it did. So let's talk about The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings is an epic high fantasy novel written by the famous J.R.R. Tolkien, John Ronald Rule Tolkien. It actually began as a sequel to his 1937 fantasy novel The Hobbit, about which I sure, I'm sure I will do an, another episode at a future time but eventually developed into a much larger work. And in fact, it became the bridge between that book, The Hobbit, and Tolkien's wider mythology, which he started working on as early as the time when he was hospitalized with trench fever during the First World War, if not earlier. So Lotter, as fans often affectionately call it, uh, was written in stages between 1937 and 1949. So this is going back away now into the first half of the 20th century. However, even though it's a bit dated now in some ways, it is one of the best-selling novels ever written, as I'm sure you know, with over 150 million copies of it sold. In fact, I think it's a Sunday Times or an English Times quote that's often on the back of the English edition says that the world or the reading world is divided into those who have read The Lord of the Rings and those who are going to. So chances are you've probably read The Lord of the Rings before, in which case you're going to enjoy this episode because we're just going to talk about why it's so great and go over some of the best and best loved quotes from The Lord of the Rings. Okay, enough entry spiel. Let me read you now the first page of The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien to remind you of its glory 
and grandeur, even if it doesn't start in the most grand of places, or to pique your interest if you're one of the few people, one of the few English readers who have never read it before. So The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Chapter One, A Long Expected Party. When Mr Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 111st birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. Bilbo was very rich and very peculiar and had been the wonder of the Shire for 60 years, ever since his remarkable disappearance and unexpected return. The riches he had brought back from his travels had now become a local legend and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. And if that was not enough for fame, there was also his prolonged vigour to marvel at. Time wore on, but it seemed to have little effect on Mr Baggins. At 90, he was much the same as 50. At 99, they began to call him well-preserved, but unchanged would have been nearer the mark. There were some that shook their heads and thought this was too much of a good thing. It seemed unfair that anyone should possess, apparently, perpetual youth, as well as, reputedly, inexhaustible wealth. It will have to be paid for, they said. It isn't natural, and trouble will come of it. But so far, trouble had not come, and as Mr Baggins was generous with his money, most people were willing to forgive him his oddities and his good fortune. He remained on visiting terms with his relatives, except, of course, the Sackville Bagginses, and he had many devoted admirers among the hobbits of poor and unimportant families. But he had no close friends until some of his younger cousins began to grow up. The eldest of these, and Bilbo's favourite, was young Frodo Baggins. When Bilbo was 99, he adopted Frodo as his heir and brought him to live at Bag End, and the hopes of the Sackville Bagginses were finally dashed. Bilbo and Frodo happened to have the same birthday, September the 22nd. You had better come and live here, Frodo, my lad, said Bilbo one day, and then we can celebrate our birthday parties comfortably together. At that time, Frodo was still in his tweens, as the hobbits called the irresponsible twenties, between childhood and coming of age at 33. All right, so that was the first page of The Lord of the Rings. Why is this book so good? Why has it become such a classic? In fact, not just a classic of fantasy, but a classic of all English language fiction books, if not just English language books, if not just books. There are few books that are more famous than The Lord of the Rings in the world. Well, there are many possible answers you could give. I'm just going to give some suggestions here. And of course, you may disagree with me or you may agree with me, but one reason, I think, is because after that quite inauspicious start of a birthday party in a sleepy town in the Shire, modelled on the shires of England uh, and the, the English countryside that Tolkien loved so much, the Lord of the Rings, after an inciting incident with the ring uh, of, of the title, the eponymous ring, opens up in scale and scope. And it just becomes bigger and bigger and more and more epic with more and more characters and nations and countries and warring factions and even sort of spiritual forces being added in until it goes from this old man's birthday party in the countryside to this vast, enormous battle 
between the forces of good and evil for the fate of the entire world and it's absolutely breathtaking so that's one reason why it's so good what else could we say well there hadn't ever really been anything like the lord of the rings published before it came out that needs qualification of course there had been fantastical writings there had been myth of course mythical stories that had been passed down through oral traditions and then written down later and Tolkien studied these and certainly I think that has something to do with why the Lord of the Rings is so amazing and, and so well loved because Tolkien was such an avid and committed student of myth himself I think that this secondary myth making came out of him because he was so familiar with the the structure and the language of myth so he was writing a myth which hadn't been done before but what sorry which which had been done before of course but what hadn't been done before was a myth in updated modern modern english prose that was published as a mass market book there did of course exist in america certainly the genre of sword and sorcery short stories that were being published in pulp magazines fantastical pulp magazines alongside their sister science fiction stories um and as as someone like for example gardner dozoir points out in the forward to the, his collection um his, his and george rr R. martin's collection swords however this publication of a of an epic myth in modern contemporary prose for a popular audience of this scale this was new this was new and people loved it it seemed to tap in to something in the collective imagination maybe helped of course by uh bootlegged unauthorized editions coming out first in america and being uh being lapped up by the hippie culture when they were on various psychedelics and things in in the 1960s but yeah I, th I think more than that lord of the rings tapped into something in the collective imagination by speaking the language of myth and doing it in 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 the vernacular and i think that's another reason why it has been so popular and become such a classic there are more though there are more of course although yeah, along yeah along similar lines so i once read a biography of tolkien that argued that it's so his work is so well loved because it uses Jungian archetypes so these sort of primordial images from from the collective unconscious that speak to us universally and I think there's something in that because that's that's just what that's what myth does that's that's what mythic stories do and Tolkien was doing that so well but I actually think it's more than that for two reasons I think the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's writing as a whole manages to do that with this incredible lyricism and unpretentious but and yet deeply serious poetic quality which makes it so mesmerizing and and um, spellbinding to read also i think personally part of the reason it's been so successful is because tolkien's mythopia his mythopoesis his his making of myth grew out of his religious and specifically his Christian worldview. Even though the Lord of the Rings isn't 
explicitly Christian. It's certainly implicitly Christian. There's so many Christological types all over that work. The, the, the whole world, even if it's never said out loud, is, is a Christian world. If you delve into the Silmarillion, on which we'll have an episode at some point as well, this, the very structure, it almost doesn't need to be said out loud because the whole structure of, of, this, of, of the way this world is designed is coming out of a Christian way of looking at reality. That would be my argument about Lord of the Rings and one of the reasons why it appeals to people and resonates with people so much. I think it's for those reasons. Let me take you now, though, on a journey through at least some of the Lord of the Rings by way of some of the most popular quotes from the book, as voted on by the users of the site, of the site Goodreads, which is gen generally pretty good for finding out things to do with books and fantasy books. So the book actually doesn't open with that chapter one that I read the first page of to you. It opens famously or infamously with a prologue called Concerning Hobbits, which isn't actually a narrative at all. It's it's essentially a world building exercise where Tolkien goes in great detail and with great glee um, into the minutiae and ins and outs of the, the habits, customs and, and, and facts about his invented people group hobbits, also known as halflings, and how they go about their lives in his, his fictional land of the Shire in Middle-earth. And this is an absolutely terrible way to start a book. I'm sure many people skip it. It's quite long, this prologue. I think it's about 10 pages or so off the top of my head. And um, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just telling you information about hobbits and how this got past the publisher. I, I have no idea. I don't think it would these days. And it's a very bad precedent because I'm sure it has started off all sorts of budding fantasy authors on their way by convincing them that they need to front load their books with reams and reams of, of information about their secondary world, which is quite frankly boring. But, you know, it, it must not have been too bad or maybe the rest of the book was strong enough that people have managed to, to get beyond it. Or I don't know, maybe some people do really enjoy hearing straight away before they've read anything else about you know the north farthing and the south farthing and the history of the tooks and the different kinds of pipe weed that the hobbits smoke maybe the the uh, the 1960s hippies did enjoy that but anyway that's what you get before chapter one is a sort of bizarre and and esoteric lead-in however even before that the epigraph to the to the book is this quite beautiful poem maybe this is what incites and and entices people to read on when they come across this poem. It, yeah, it stands at the start of the book and it's very mysterious and it, it gives you a hint of what's to come and it's immediately mythic and mythical. It's, it's a, a wide lens, bird's eye view of, of the narrative and some of the narrative background. Anyway, I'll stop wittering on about it. Here is the, the, poet, the, the ep epigraph poem at the start of the Lord of the Rings, which is extremely well known and very evocative. Here we go. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, 
one for the Dark Lord, on his dark throne, in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them, in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. Ooh, I've got shivers. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's mysterious, it's alluring, it's telling you some of the backstory about the, these eponymous rings that someone is a lord of, and I think it really draws you in with its with its lulling meter and and its rhymes or its repetition at least and it's 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 hugely popular i can see why it's been voted to almost the top quote of the lord of the rings from the lord of the rings on goodreads um some people know this by heart i one of my friends at school or someone i knew at school i'm prepared to admit to being hugely hugely dorky and geeky but this this person was more of an acquaintance had this had this written on on his rucksack he'd put it on in in tipex or something so it has a sort of scriptural quality like lots of the lord of the rings to to its fans so that's our first quote so that's at the start of the book when you get into it though after the concerning hobbits prologue and the long expected party of of for bilbo baggins birthday as i say what really gets the narrative going and kickstarts it into action is this inciting event which isn't too much of a spoiler because it's so early on but that Bilbo sorry Frodo discovers via the wizard Gandalf his friend that he is in possession because it's been given to him by Bilbo before before he leaves to go and retire in in Rivendell a ring which is the one ring mentioned in that poem forged by the Dark Lord Sauron which can control all these different magical rings in Middle-earth and which ultimately has extreme power and, and the ability to, to, to give its wielder extreme power so they can come to, to shape and dominate the world for themselves. Some people have compared it to like being a nuclear bomb, there might be something there. I don't think Tolkien wanted to push those resonances too strongly, in fact there's a note in, in the preface to the more recent editions of, of Lord of the Rings from, from his lifetime that said that he cordially detests all form of allegory. He doesn't like allegory where things uh, in the story correspond directly to, to real world tropes and ideas. He said he wasn't doing that, but he does also say that the better a deliberate, deliberate allegory is made, the harder it will be to tell it is one, and the better you write just a regular story, the more susceptible it will be uh, to being interp interpreted as an allegory. So that, that's very interesting, I think. It's extremely easy to interpret Lord of the Rings as an allegory for something, but maybe that just indicates, according to Tolkien, <laughs> it's, that it's just a very well-written story. Uh, he preferred the term applicability over, over allegory. But anyway, Frodo discovers he has this one ring to rule them all and sets out on a journey to do something about this. And he can you know in 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 a, um, a demonstration of one of the key themes of the book he is able to do this precisely because he is not some great powerful tall mighty lord or warrior he's just a humble little hobbit and therefore the ring even though it does exert its power over him doesn't and does tempt him is not so dangerous in his hands so he eventually becomes the one to take on the quest to destroy this ring. So here's a quote that um, illustrates the start of this journey. It's not exactly 
concordant with the beginning of this journey, but something that I believe Bilbo, I think, yes, I think it's Bilbo says to Frodo, which is another of the top, in fact, sorry, the top voted quote, th th this one from the Lord of the Rings on Goodreads. Bilbo says to Frodo, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. And I can just hear it in Ian Holm's voice because they used that one in the most recent film versions and, and they did it excellently. Another quote from Lord of the Rings, another top voted quote, is actually another poem. So third top voted quote, continuing with the theme of journeying to go with Frodo journeying out into Middle-earth to discover what's going on with this ring and ultimately how to destroy it. Uh, this poem is called Roads Go Ever On. I can't remember whose mouth it appears in in the book. It's either Bilbo or Frodo. I think they both know it. Frodo probably learned it from Bilbo. Or perhaps it's just it's just a, um, a general hobbit walking song or poem. That's right, yes. Tolkien, of course, absolutely loved walking in the English countryside in his, his home nation with sometime friends like C.S. Lewis and Owen Barfield and, and people like that. So here's the poem, Roads Go Ever On. Roads go ever, ever on, over rock and under tree, by caves where never sun has shone, by streams that never find the sea. Over snow, by winter sown, and through the merry flowers of June, over grass and over stone, and under mountains in the moon. Roads go ever, ever on, under cloud and under star, yet feet that wandering have gone, turn at last home afar. Eyes that fire and sword have seen, and horror in the halls of stone, look at last on meadows green, and trees and hills they have long known. The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, and I must follow, if I can. Pursuing it with weary feet, until it joins some larger way, where many paths and errands meet, and whither then I cannot say. The road goes ever on and on, out from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, let others follow, if they can. Let them a journey new begin, but I at last with weary feet will turn towards the lighted inn, my evening rest and sleep to meet. So there you go, another beautiful poem by Tolkien from the text of The Lord of the Rings. You can see another recurring theme in The Lord of the Rings in that, especially in the final stanza, which is that of death. So, you know, I at last with weary feet will turn toward the lighted inn, my evening rest and sleep to meet. Quite clearly, I think, a metaphor for death. And Tolkien struggled with the death of his own father when he was very young and later his, his mother. He was an, a teenage orphan. And of course, he saw huge amounts of death as a soldier fighting in World War One. And you definitely see this theme, this, this great theme all throughout uh, Lord of the Rings, but perhaps especially with Bilbo and Frodo. And there it is in their, their walking song, the, the idea of, of coming to an inn for evening rest after a long journey. The metaphor of a journey is strong and potent in the Lord of the Rings as well, of course. Um, it reminds me of Psalm 23, actually, as well, reading at that time, lying by 
um, clear waters uh, in, in, in a field, in, in a meadow, in pastures green, where it talks about looking at last on meadows green in, in this after, after a traumatic and terrifying journey. So there, there you go, that's Rose Go Everon. Another quote, another quote. Another, my, the next quote that's one of the top voted for Lord of the Rings is yet another piece of verse. So fans love the, the Tolkien poetry that, that peppers his prose and adds some real texture and sense of depth to it as these, these songs appear, appear in his work. I, haven't, I don't think I've ever come across a fantasy author who has done this so well. The songs you see in other fantasy, epic fantasy novels usually read like pastiches or poor imitations but Tolkien Tolkien wrote simple but but beautiful poetry I think and there's another Hobbit song which is recited or sung later on in the text which goes like this home is behind the world ahead and there are many paths to tread through shadows to the edge of night until the stars are all alight and like the road goes ever on and on that was immortalized if that's the right term in the the cinema versions as well that's sung by billy boyd uh quite quite wonderfully in i believe the uh, the return of the king um in peter jackson's cinema version the return of the king so another another beautiful poem just a couple more uh best loved quotes from the lord of the rings i have taken from among the top five but i've also selected some that are my favorites from among the top 10 and 20. Without spoiling too much, here's an absolutely um, stunning conversation between Pippin, one of the four hobbits who goes out on this journey with the ring, or the, the, one of the three that joins Frodo um, among his friends on, on this journey, and the wizard Gandalf, the, the spirit guide archetype who joins the hobbits on much and most of their, their journey through Middle-earth. So they're, I think they're in Minas Tirith, I'm going on the film here, which isn't so good. It's been a little while, just a few years since I reread The Lord of the Rings for the uh, the third time to my to my wife this time. Um, but so yeah, I think I think they're in Minas Tirith. Doesn't matter too much because we're still in the spoiler-free zone. But yeah, conversation between Pippin and Gandalf, starting with Pippin's voice uh, on on the brink of destruction. This is during an epic battle, or on sorry, on the eve um, of an epic battle. Here we go. So Pippin says, I didn't think it would end this way. End? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The grey rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass, and then you see it. What, Gandalf? See what? White shores, and beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. Well, that isn't too bad. No, no, it isn't. So yeah, there you go. Another top voted quote from Lord of the Rings that has to do with death. So I think, I think Tolkien, I think this is where you see that Christian worldview coming, coming through because not all spiritual or religious worldviews and non-religious worldviews certainly have a conception of an afterlife, but Lord of the Rings is soaked in it. And you see that much more if you look into the, the Silmarillion and and beyond there is much of a world beyond this world and a life beyond this life that is dealt with and that comes through in the the uh the narrative and the dialogue of the lord of the rings so they're just one example 
Okay, and just one more quote, top-voted famous quote from The Lord of the Rings before we end the spoiler-free section of this podcast and get into the spoiler zone. So this time, slightly earlier, this is one of my all-time, if not my all-time top favourite quote from The Lord of the Rings. Frodo talking with Gandalf. So we've got Frodo saying something and then Gandalf's reply. Frodo, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Yeah, and that's been very well remembered in in the film as well, but that's not the reason why it's it's my favourite quote. I just think that is wisdom. That is wisdom. When you're facing something that you don't want to be facing, something you weren't expecting perhaps, or something terrible and miserable, you might not be able to change your circumstances and in fact often you can't change your circumstances but what you can change is what you do about them all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us all we have to decide is what to do in the face of the circumstances that we find ourselves in that we can't uh, decide whatever they might be whether they're global circumstances or family or work or money or physical health or mental health We can't choose the context we discover ourselves in, in the immediate present. What we can do is choose how we respond. And that might change our future context. Um, Or it might not, but we're still in control and and we have power over what we do. And Tolkien would have believed that God, our creator, gave us this control and power over what we can do, which is an awesome and, and solemn thing. And so I think that's wisdom. I think that's a beautiful quote from The Lord of the Rings, full of wisdom. All right, so you are now entering the spoiler zone of this podcast. From this point on, I will not be afraid to spoil elements of the plot of The Lord of the Rings and give the game away. So if you are one of the few people who haven't read it or seen it um, and want to to avoid spoilers don't want to have things spoiled for you i suggest you stop listening now turn the podcast off or go and do something else or listen to another one skip to the next one because we are entering the spoiler zone now you have been warned all right so the first thing i want to do in the spoiler zone which won't last too too long is to just give you a summary of the action of the whole of the Lord of the Rings to remind you or tell you if you've not read it before but are still listening what happens in the story and this is as much just for fun as anything else so here is an abridged telling version so a told version of the plot of the Lord of the Rings to remind you of the story of this amazing book and give you the the plot in potted form for for your enjoyment so sit back lie back whatever wherever you are relax and just let this story wash over you again the lord of the rings by jrr tolkien so first of all the first volume is called the fellowship of the ring so in the fellowship of the ring the narrative follows on from the hobbit tolkien's earlier book in which the hobbit Bilbo Baggins finds the ring capital R which had been in the possession of the creature Gollum Gollum 
The story begins in the Shire, where Frodo Baggins inherits the ring from Bilbo, his cousin, and his guardian. Neither Hobbit, though, is aware at this point at the start of the novel of the ring's nature, but Gandalf the Grey, a wizard and old friend of Bilbo, who, by the way, trivia, is a Maya spirit, like an angel incarnate, who's been sent by Eru, the god of Middle-earth. I told you Tolkien had a Christian worldview uh, into, into Middle-earth in order to help its people and protect them against Sauron. He, Gandalf, suspects it to be the ring, the one ring of power lost by Sauron many years ago, hundreds of years ago, but lost by Sauron, the Dark Lord. 17 years later, uh, after Bilbo's party, after Gandalf comes back and confirms this is true, he tells Frodo the history of the ring and counsels him to take it away from the Shire. Frodo sets out, accompanied by his gardener, servant and friend Samwise Sam Gamgee, a, an absolute fan favourite, and two of his cousins, Merry Adoc, Merry Brandybuck and Peregrine, aka Pippin Took. And they're nearly caught by the Nazgul, black riders sent by the Dark Lord Sauron who is rebuilding his strength and power in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. They're nearly caught by these black riders but they manage to shake off their pursuers by cutting through a place called the Old Forest and this was completely cut out of the film versions I think sensibly and Tolkien actually did say in a letter that it would probably make sense to, to cut this if a film was ever made. Uh, in the Old Forest they are aided by a figure called Tom Bombadil, a strange and merry fellow, a little bit like a sort of woodland spirit um, who lives with his wife Goldberry in, in the forest. Bombadil's maybe a bit more pagan, although Tolkien might not like me for, for saying that, but he's he's like an embodiment of of the spirit of the forest and he he kind of epitomizes and anthropomorphizes the the, the countryside and, and Tolkien's love of the countryside and, and the natural world, I think. Anyway, the hobbits then, after being aided by Bombadil in, in a fight against some, some spooky Barrow Whites, reach the town of Bree, where they encounter a ranger named Strider. And this setting and this event is, yes, it was echoing previously uh, used tropes, but, but it's become the, the forerunner for many, many, many tropes in fantasy literature like it that have come since. Uh, and Gandalf mentioned this ranger called Strider, um, in, a, in a letter to Frodo. So they, they decide he's all right, he's okay. Strider persuades the hobbits to take them on as their guide and protector, and together they leave Bree after another close escape from the Nazgul. On the hill of Weathertop, though, they are again attacked by the Nazgul, who wound Frodo with a cursed blade. The leader of the Nazgul, the Witch King, stabs Frodo, wounding him, and this wound stays with Frodo until the end of of the novel, another theme to do with trauma and death, I think. Anyway, Strider fights off the Nazgul on Weathertop and leads the hobbits towards next the elven refuge of Rivendell. However, on the way, Frodo falls deathly ill from the Witch King's wound, and the Nazgul, having regrouped after Aragorn fending them off, nearly capture him at the ford of um, Brunen. Uh, is that how you pronounce it? I think that's right. Yeah, Br Bruinen, that's right. But floodwaters, at the last moment, are summoned by Elrond, I think here echoing, of course, the, the waters crashing over the Egyptian chariots in the Exodus story, which Tolkien would have known. Um, yeah, by Elrond, master of Rivendell, who causes water to rise up and, and overwhelm the Black Riders. 
There's also a, a, um, a guy called, an elf called Glorfindel around at this point as well, who's, who's aiding uh, Frodo and trying to get him to Rivendell in time, who's replaced in the film versions by, by Arwen. But um, yeah, we don't need to spend too much time on him. So Frodo recovers in Rivendell under Elrond's care. Then a council is held to decide, decide what to do about the ring that Frodo has brought to Rivendell. The Council of Elrond, as it's known, discusses the history of Sauron on the ring with quite a lot of exposition. And Strider in this council is revealed to actually be Aragorn, the heir of Isildur, the, the former king of men who uh, wrested the ring from Sauron um, with, with his blade, um, but, then, but then lost it. Gandalf reports that the chief wizard of his order, Saruman, another incarnate Maya, has betrayed them, which has happened in a, in a subplot, and is now working to become a power in his own right. So there's more than one enemy. We've got the Dark Lord gathering strength and Saruman, the evil white wizard, or now wizard of many colours as well. So the council of Elrond decides that the ring must be destroyed. That's the logical conclusion, but that can only be done by sending it to the fire of Mount Doom in Mordor, where it was forged. That's the only possible way to destroy this ring. So there, by about halfway into this massive first volume, Fellowship of the Ring, you have the story is set up properly. Frodo must travel to Mount Doom, to the crack of doom there, and destroy the ring. It's the only way it can happen, and that needs to happen to defeat Sauron and save the world. So Frodo takes this task admirably and nobly upon himself, but not without trepidation. Elrond then, with the advice of Gandalf, chooses some companions for him to help him. They can't carry the ring themselves, but they can selves, but they can carry him. Uh, as a famous quote from, from the film will remind you. So the company of the ring, the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, hence the title, are nine in number. And they are, of course, Frodo, Sam, Merry, Pippin, Aragorn, Gandalf and new additions Gimli the dwarf representing the dwarves he is I think a nephew if I'm right of one of the dwarves in the Hobbit um, Legolas the elf and the man rep representing elves sorry Legolas and the man representing humans Boromir along with Aragorn the son of Denethor the ruling steward of the land of Gondor in the south which borders Mordor so, after a failed attempt to cross the Misty Mountains, which are in The Hobbit as well, over the Redhorn Pass, this fellowship take the perilous path through the mines of Moria. They then learn of the fate of Balin. Yeah, that's it. Uh, Gimli's uncle slash cousin, someone will correct me, I'm sure, in a comment, and his colony of dwarves. After surviving an attack there, they are pursued by orcs and by a Balrog epic scene, an ancient fire demon in the mines of Moria. Moria. Gandalf faces this Balrog and both of them fall um, after their battle into an abyss. The others escape and find refuge in the elven forest of Lothlorien, thinking Gandalf dead, where they are then counselled by its rulers, the elves Galadriel and Celeborn. So they've, they've made it from Rivendell through the mountains to another elven sanctuary, that of the forest Lothlorien. With boats and gifts from Galadriel then, the company travelled down the river Anduin to the hill of Amon-Hen. There, however, Boromir, the human in the Fellowship, tries to take the ring from Frodo because he's been tempted and seduced by it. But Frodo puts it on and disappears. Frodo thus chooses to go alone to Mordor, although he's not completely alone because Sam guesses what he's intending and goes with him. So the book ends with Frodo and Sam going it alone, or at least as a lone pair to 
try and destroy the ring themselves in Mordor. But there's a huge journey ahead of them still. That's where Fellowship of the Ring ends, books one and two, volume one. Then we have volume two, The Two Towers. What happens in The Two Towers? In The Two Towers, orcs are sent by Saruman and Sauron to kill Boromir and capture Merry and Pippin. And this is what happens. Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas debate which pair of hobbits to follow now that the party has been split. They decide to pursue the orcs, taking Merry and Pippin to Saruman. In the kingdom of Rohan, meanwhile, the orcs are slain by a company of Rohirrim, the horse-riding people of Rohan. So we're adding another uh, land and people group into this epic tapestry now. Merry and Pippin escape from the orcs um, through fortunate uh, turns of events into Fangorn Forest, another forest, where they are then befriended by Treebeard, the oldest of the tree-like well, of the, the humanoid trees known as Ents, shepherds of the trees that have been round, around for millennia. Aragorn, Gimli and Legolas manage to track the hobbits to Fangorn, but they don't find Merry and Pippin yet. They, they don't get hold of them because they've been carried off by Treebeard. Instead, they, unex, they unexpectedly meet, dun dun dun, Gandalf. Gandalf shows up and explains that he, has, he slew the Balrog. Then that darkness took him, as he says, but he was sent back to Middle-earth by the powers in, in, in the west over the sea, where, where he goes when he experiences death, to complete his mission. So he's now been sort of reborn, and if you can't see the, the Christological uh, resonances of this, if you, if you can't see the Christ type here, then, then I can't help you. Because he's now reborn, like like resurrected and clothed in white, and now known as Gandalf the White to supersede and replace Saruman. He's taken Saruman's place as the chief of the wizards. Gandalf assure, assures his friends that Merry and Pippin are safe. Together they ride to Edoras, capital of Rohan. Gandalf then frees Theoden, the king of Rohan, from the influence of Saruman's spy, Grima Wormtongue. Theoden musters his fighting strength and rides with his men to the ancient fortress of Helm's Deep, while Gandalf departs to seek help from Treebeard. Meanwhile, the Ents, roused by Merry and Pippin from their peaceful ways, attack Isengard. They've essentially been persuaded to make war on Isengard because Saruman is ravaging the landscape there for his industrial purposes. And you see Tolkien's love of the countryside and hatred of industrialization and um, misuse of technology coming through here. Um, so they attack Isengard, Saruman's stronghold, and manage to trap the wizard in the Tower of Orthanc. Gandalf convinces Treebeard to send an army of Hurons, um, which are like sub-ents, so smaller tree people, to Theoden's aid. Gandalf brings an army of Rohirrim to Helm's Deep, and they defeat the orcs in a massive battle at Helm's Deep, one of the two great battle scenes in the Lord of the Rings and the Orcs flee into the forest of Hurons never to be seen again because they are um, killed by them implicitly. Gandalf offers Saruman a chance to turn away from evil. When Saruman refuses to listen Gandalf strips him of his rank and most of his powers. He doesn't fall off a tower onto a spike or anything like in the extended edition of the Return of the King. That doesn't happen. More on Saruman later. Then, after Saruman crawls back to his prison, Wormtongue, Grima, so his servant, drops a sphere from the tower to try to kill Gandalf. Misses, doesn't hit him, doesn't kill him, of course, and Pippin picks it up. It, the sphere is revealed to be a palantir, 
a seeing stone that Saruman used to speak with Sauron and through which Saruman was ensnared. Pippin, through this stone, seeing stone, is seen by Sauron. Uh-oh, not good. In response, Gandalf rides for Minas Tirith. Well, he might have been going to do that anyway, uh, with Pippin, which is the chief city of Gondor. So he takes Pippin to the chief city of Gondor to investigate what's going on there and to keep an eye on the fool of a took uh, Pippin took. Meanwhile, back with Frodo and Sam, because that, that was all with um, with um, Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas, Merry and Pippin and so on. So on. Book four now focuses on Frodo and Sam's story. They managed to capture Gollum, who has been following them, it turns out, from at least the mines of Moria. And they force Gollum. Remember, Gollum was the creature who Bilbo nicked the ring off back in The Hobbit. Um, a, a wretched creature who's been twisted into uh, this miserable, foul, um, pathetic um, thing by by the ring's influence because he's ha he had it for so long uh, and who was once like a hobbit. They force Frodo and Sam, they force Gollum to, to guide them to Mordor, seeing as he knows the way. They find that the Black Gate of Mordor, though, is too well guarded. So instead, they travel to a secret way that Gollum knows. On the way, they encounter Faramir who, unlike his brother Boromir, resists the temptation to seize the ring. Gollum, who is torn between his loyalty to Frodo and his desire for the ring, betrays Frodo by leading him to the great spider Shelob in the tunnels, tunnels of Kirith Ungor. Frodo falls to Shelob's sting, but with the help of Galadriel's gifts, Sam fights off the spider. Believing Frodo to be dead, Sam then takes the ring to continue the quest alone. In The Choices of Master Samwise, a very memorable chapter. Orcs find Frodo and Sam overhears them, thankfully, and learns that Frodo is still alive. And the two, t uh, book four and volume two, The Two Towers, ends there. The Two Towers, by the way, are probably Barad-dûr, Sauron's tower in the east in Mordor, and Orthanc, Saruman's uh, tower in the west. Um, Tolkien favoured that interpretation of The Two Towers, though it is ambiguous what they refer to. All right, and then finally, you have volume three, The Return of the King. What happens in The Return of the King? In The Return of the King, Sauron sends a great army against Gondor. Gandalf arrives at Minas Tirith to warn Denethor of the attack, while Theoden musters the Rohirrim to ride to Gondor's aid. Minas Tirith is then besieged. Denethor is deceived by Sauron and falls into despair. This is at a distance, of course. Sauron's not physically there, but he's been at a distance and through a palantir deceived by by Sauron and he succumbs to to hopelessness and despair he thus burns himself alive on a pyre nearly histrionically taking his son Faramir with him Aragorn accompanied by Legolas Gimli and the Rangers of the North meanwhile takes the pass of the dead to recruit the dead men of Dunharrow who are bound by a curse which denies them rest until they fulfill their ancient forsworn oath to fight for the king of Gondor Following Aragorn, this army of the dead strikes terror into the Corsairs, the pirates of Umbar, who are invading southern Gondor at this time. Aragorn defeats the Corsairs and uses their ships to transport the men of southern Gondor up the river Anduin, reaching Minas Tirith, the, the citadel of Gondor, just in time to turn the tide of the battle. And this battle, the second great battle in The Lord of the Rings, is called the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. Theoden's niece in this battle, Eowyn, who has joined the army in disguise, another great recurrent trope in, in literature. Who says Tolkien doesn't like women? 
he's he's got um a, a lead female character here um uh, pretending to be a bloke and and joining the army she is the one in fact who slays the lord of the nazgul the witch king with the help of mary they defeat him even though he's he's riding this huge um dragon-like beast and together gondor and rohan then defeat sauron's army in this battle though at great cost sustaining many casualties among them Theoden. so Theoden's killed and eowyn and mary while not killed are grievously wounded meanwhile back with sam and frodo sam rescues frodo from the tower of kirithungal where where shelob was uh, around where shelob was hanging out they set out across mordor aragorn leads an army of men from gondor and rohan to march on the black gate to distract sauron from his true danger his army is vastly outnumbered by the great might of sauron though all the same frodo and sam manage to reach the edge of the cracks of doom but disaster die catastrophe as tolkien would say frodo cannot resist the tempting allure and influence of the ring upon him any longer so what does he do he claims it for himself and he puts it on his finger just at the point of victory utter defeat Gollum suddenly reappears he struggles with Frodo and bites off Frodo's finger with the ring still on it celebrating wildly Gollum loses his footing and falls into the fire taking the ring with him when the ring is destroyed at the climactic moment of the Lord of the Rings the you catastrophe the good catastrophe as Tolkien called it Sauron loses his power forever all that he's created collapses the Nazgul perish and his armies are thrown into such disarray disarray that Aragorn's forces emerge victorious so then in the wrap-up of the Lord of the Rings Aragorn is crowned king of Arnor and Gondor the north and the south and weds Arwen the daughter of Elrond the four hobbits make their way back to the Shire only to find that it has been taken over by men directed by one Sharky and this is the coda so they, they didn't put this in the film either and again I believe Tolkien said that it would be better to leave this out of uh, cinematic dramatizations Sharky they discover to be Saruman the hobbits raise a rebellion and manage to liberate the Shire though 19 hobbits are killed and 30 are wounded in this process Frodo stops the hobbits from killing the wizard after after he attempts after Saruman attempts to stab Frodo but in the end Grima Worm, Wormtongue turns on Saruman and kills him in front of Bag End Frodo's home he in turn is slain by hobbit archers and thus the war of the ring comes to its true end on Frodo's very doorstep subsequently Merry and Pippin are celebrated as heroes Sam marries his um, long admired um, crush Rosie Cotton and uses his gifts from Galadriel to help heal the Shire but Frodo is still wounded in body and in spirit having borne the ring for so long until, he until it was destroyed so a few years later in the company of Bilbo and Gandalf Frodo sails from the Grey Havens west over the sea to the undying lands to find peace and Sam returns home and says it's good to be back and that's where the Lord of the Rings ends in the appendices Sam gives his daughter Eleanor the Red Book of Westmark West Westmarch sorry Red Book of Westmarch which contains the story of Bilbo's adventures and the War of the Ring as witnessed by the hobbits Sam is then said to have crossed west over the sea himself one day the last of the ring bearers
So, that's the Lord of the Rings. I won't talk for very much longer, but just a few final things to say about it as we wrap up this podcast. A tiny bit of spoiler discussion about just why it is so good. Why is it so good with with spoilers now? Well, it's just such an amazing story, isn't it? That cycle of small beginnings and then fanning out and panning out to become absolutely epic and then shrinking back down again to the the humble um, small world that we started in. But nonetheless, with everything changed, that is fundamental to uh, storytelling and myth making, I think. And it's been imitated and repeated by so many different stories afterwards. And I think that's because in its own way, it was imitating and mimic mimicking a a classic format which had been done many times before in myth but it just did it so well and with such a powerful index of of symbols such a wonderful register of language and it did it in a in a modern contemporary way Tolkien dared to write something that that was that was that fundamentally mythical in 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 his vernacular and pe- people just loved it they lapped it up and of course he was the one who was equipped to do it especially because of his philology because of his deep study of of human language and because of of his um his um his love of myth and and his how deeply he'd gone into the myths of well not just england because england doesn't really have uh many many myths of its own and, and he actually said he was trying to give his his home country, its own set of myths by writing Lord of the Rings, but also, you know, the, the myths of Scandinavia, the Norse myths, um, myths from Greenland, myths from Finland and and beyond. That's what it grew out of. That didn't really depend on, on spoilers, that discussion all that much, but it's just such a, a huge and vast and epic and, and grand story. Um, how how can people ha- have, fail, have failed to um how could people fail to to enjoy it that's that's what i'm trying to say but anyway so much has been said about the lord of the rings um already i could say so much more about it i've just given you a few little tidbits here really off the top of my head uh for this podcast but hopefully that has reminded you why you love the lord of the rings so much or perhaps to one or two people out there given you some reasons to act to read it and and have a go at tackling uh the giant that is the classic fantasy novel the lord of the rings so this has been classic fantasy books i've been luke tarasenko if you want to support this par- this podcast again go to patreon.com forward slash classic fantasy books if you want to support my own writing go to patreon.com forward slash luke tarasenko tarasenko is um one r two s's and ends in a knockout ko you can see my own writing there and uh, support it as well if you like. And just as a disclaimer, if there's any publishers or legal type people listening to this podcast, I do not believe that I have done anything at all illegal in producing this podcast because I have only read out the first page of this book, which even though it's under copyright to the Tolkien estate, could be read by anyone in a bookshop and indeed is readable completely for free on websites such as Amazon as a free sample. And if anything... I think this free sample that I've given in audio form is only going to encourage people to buy the book for themselves or go and read it for themselves. So I believe I am covered there.
This is Luke Tarasenko for Classic Fantasy Books, signing out. Thanks for listening.